Chapter 4. What are the scriptures for? If you believed Moses, you would believe me, since he wrote about me, Jesus, in John 5.46. The best way to hear God is through scripture. There is much debate today on the value of scripture. People debate its miracles, historical accuracy, human and divine authorship, and applicability to modern-day life. I don't address those debates in this book. I assume that you, the reader, share with me, the writer, the traditional historical belief in the value, truthfulness, and godly inspiration of the Bible. Because of that, you may be tempted to skip this chapter, but I urge you to read it carefully. It addresses a fundamental question on which all of our hearing God rests. If our approach to Scripture is flawed, then all other, quote, words from God, end of quote, will be so even more. It is only in Scripture that we can be sure, absolutely certain, that we have real truth from God's lips to our ears. Scripture is the training ground, or rather, tuning ground, in which our ears learn to detect and recognize the still small whispers of God. Once our ears are attuned to God's voice in the Bible, we will begin to recognize His voice elsewhere, speaking to us in the most surprising moments, waiting for a cashier, washing the dishes, or having coffee with a friend. Because hearing God in Scripture is primary, to accurately hear His voice in Scripture, we have to ask questions we rarely consider. Why did He write the Bible? What are the Scriptures for? If we don't know why God wrote Scripture, we'll misunderstand His gift and miss His voice. Let's say you give me a $10,000 U.S. savings bond. I'll be happy to send you my address but I don't know what a savings bond is for. I might still find significance in it. Perhaps I'd consider the certificate pretty, so I'd frame it and nail it to the wall. Or I might attach sentimental value to it. It's a personal gift from you. And so I'd treat it like a birthday card and pack it away with other memorabilia. Similarly, if we don't know what Scripture is for, we'll misunderstand, misuse, and maybe abuse it. Scripture is not a maintenance manual. I once heard a sermon that proposed we adopt the bad metaphor of a car owner. The manufacturer provides us with two tools. First, he gives us a maintenance manual with step-by-step instructions for oil changes, proper tire pressure, and timetables for scheduled upkeep. Second, he gives us a phone number with his number on speed dial. The maintenance manual represents the Bible, and the phone number represents prayer. I bet you figured that out on your own. When we don't understand the manual, we have direct access to the chief engineer. There are two major problems with this metaphor. Not for prescribing correct behavior. The first problem with this conception of Scripture is that it presents a cold, sterile, almost lifeless image of the Bible. If Scripture is a maintenance manual, then it's mainly a prescription for correct behaviors. 
one more to-do list in our lives. A big one. Images like the maintenance manual metaphor are common, and they offer a hint of wisdom, but mostly they mislead us. The Bible is not primarily a do-it-yourself manual for life maintenance. Few of us know our tie rods from our elbows anyway. Yet it's taught like that every day. Three principles for a better marriage, five steps to thinking right, seven weapons for spiritual warfare, and so on. Don't misunderstand me. Scripture teaches these lessons and more. They just aren't its primary purpose. Not for propagating spiritual lessons. The second problem with the owner's manual metaphor is that it completely misrepresents the character of Scripture. The second problem is more difficult to disentangle. When I was in high school, my parents celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary and went away for two weeks. They left a to-do list for my siblings and me. Feed the dog, vacuum and dust weekly, take out the trash, and don't put your younger sister in the clothes dryer again. The list included a few to-don'ts as well. The list concerned our actions. Frankly, it could have been written by anyone with a modicum of smarts. Its authorship didn't matter. It could just as easily have been written by friends of my parents. All that mattered was how we children behaved. In other words, the list was about us. That's why so many religions have the same rules about sexuality, honesty, and generosity. They've been written by people with wisdom. The authors aren't nearly as important as the insights. Confucius said, Humility is the solid foundation of all virtues. But it doesn't matter that Confucius said it. Any sage could have written it. It only matters if we follow its advice. His proverb is about us. And that is the deeper, more insidious problem, really a perversion, with the maintenance manual metaphor. It makes scripture about us, not the author, just the reader. It turns scripture into a spiritualized Aesop's fables with lessons about how you should do this and not do that. It makes the doer of deeds more important than the author of the book. Meet the author. Is scripture about us or is scripture about God? It's a question we probably haven't consciously asked ourselves, but its answer will govern much of our spiritual well-being. Is the Bible a maintenance manual for personal upkeep, or is the Bible a personal letter from God? We treasure personal letters and leave manuals in the glove box. Jesus made a strange statement, I mean bizarre, about the Bible. When he said, you examine the scriptures carefully because you suppose that in them you have eternal life, yet they testify about me. John 5, 39. Jesus says the scriptures are about him, about God. They aren't about us. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus meets two dispirited disciples despairing that their Messiah had been killed. He says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe 
all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 25 and 27. Jesus says that of all the genres, of all the books in the library, the Bible most closely resembles a personal memoir. It is God's self-revelation. It's literally a book authored by God that unveils his heart and mind and spirit. Someone once said, we come to scripture not to learn a subject, but to steep ourselves in a person. A right understanding of Scripture makes all the difference in the world for hearing God. It means we meditate on Scripture to hear His voice. It is in meeting Him there, in His self-revealed Word, that we will hear Him. Yes, of course, we'll also change how we behave, but we change because we've seen God. We change because he himself has spoken to us. We see and hear and know the Father. And it is impossible for us to remain the same. Putting it another way, to the degree that we see and hear and know him, to that degree, our lives change. Knowing wisdom doesn't change us. We all grasp the wisdom of diet and exercise, right? How are you doing with that wisdom? Only when we know the person of wisdom incarnate will we finally live the life we were designed for. When we meditate on scripture, we come to see, hear, and know the person of God. Not for the purpose of mere inspiration. Our personalities differ. Some of us would never read scripture like a maintenance manual. We go to scripture for inspiration. We read, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we love it. We are inspired. Our hearts are uplifted and we face the new day with hope. That is good and right. God's plan to arrange all our circumstances, the good and the bad, for our good, well, Frankly, that still astounds me. If that verse doesn't inspire me, I must be a dead man walking. But let's examine the inspiration purpose for approaching Scripture. Am I going to Scripture primarily to boost my spirits? If so, isn't my search for inspiration just another form of making the Bible about me? Perhaps this approach is more difficult to discern because inspiration feels more personal than a task list. I am the kind of person who is easily inspired. When I worked in business, one of my clients was the publisher of Chicken Soup for the Soul. They sent me free copies and I secretly devoured them. Don't tell anyone. I vividly remember many stories of courage, determination, love, and self-sacrifice. Those stories boosted my spirits. I became a touch less cynical and a little more hopeful. But I don't remember a single author of the stories. I remember the encouragement, but I don't remember the encourager. My good feelings were still about me. Reading scripture is about meeting the author. Don't get me wrong, that meeting will definitely inspire you. 
It may also scare the living daylights out of you. Just read some of the biblical accounts of others who meet God. If we approach the scriptures to meet the person, we will lose none of the inspiration. The point is, if scripture is about God, then we read it to meet God. Let's not worry about our inspiration. God will provide all the inspiration we need, sometimes even more than we think we need. Not even just for the pursuit of truth. While some of us are emotionally inclined, many of us lean more toward the cerebral. We go to Scripture for truth. None of that emotional nonsense. We wish to understand the mysteries of the universe, the relationship between justification and sanctification, the interaction of sovereignty and free will, and the difference between superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. I didn't make those up. Of all the approaches to Scripture, from Aesop's fable moralism to chicken soup for the soul inspiration, the danger of truth pursuit is perhaps the sneakiest. We agree Scripture is the authentic, God-breathed Word, so what could be dangerous about going to Scripture for truth? Don't worry, my answer is nothing. And yet, 15 years ago, I took flying lessons. I got my private pilot license, then my instrument ticket, and finally a multi-engine certification. Of my many different teachers, two stand out because of their opposite approaches to education. One teacher had a PhD in aeronautical engineering. He could talk for hours about lift, drag, thrust, adiabatic lapse rates, and optimal engine performance, but he had only a few hundred hours of accumulated flying time. The other teacher had barely graduated from high school, but he had 10,000 hours of experience flying small planes. Care to guess who helped me the most? It wasn't the PhD pilot who could explain the conditions causing thunderstorms. It was the high school pilot who sat next to me as we flew between storm cells at midnight. One had an academic knowledge. He really did know the truth, but the other knew how to fly. The danger in pursuing Scripture for truth, which we should do, is that some of us are inclined to be satisfied with abstract academic knowledge. We haven't met Mr. Flying. We've only read about him in books. John Calvin wrote, For the word of God is not received by faith if it flits about in the top of the brain but only when it takes root in the depth of the heart. C.S. Lewis put it this way, We may come to love knowledge, our knowing, more than the thing known, to delight not in the exercise of our talents, but in the fact that they are ours, or even in the reputation they bring us. Every success in a scholar's life increases this danger. If it becomes irresistible, he must give up his scholarly work. The time for plucking out the right eye has arrived. So why? We come to Scripture to meet God. In that encounter, we will find morals, inspiration, and truth, because Scripture does address our will, emotions, and intellect. It should. God engages our entire person. He wants all of our actions, feelings, and ideas, and more. He wants everything that we are to encounter the reality of himself. The moralist shouldn't disparage the intellectual 
and the intellectual shouldn't look down on the feeler. God wants all of us and every part of us to know all of him. Perhaps that is the brilliance found in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John. The Word is personified. The Word, which was with God and was God, became flesh. The Word was always a person, but the Word became flesh so that we humans could know the person of God. Meaning the Word is not simply moral, emotional, or intellectual. It is all of those and more. Jesus came to make God known, John 1.18. And knowing God is what we pursue in the scriptures. It is in meeting God that we hear him and in hearing him that we know him. That is why scriptural meditation is the essential training ground for hearing God. It is only in scripture that we find the truest self-revelation of God. And so it is only in Scripture that we learn to most fully recognize His voice. When we meet the person of God in Scripture, then we finally have a voice we can recognize in the murky alleys and lanes of our everyday life. If all you want is a moral to-do list, check out Aesop's Fables. If all you want is to feel emotionally uplifted, I can lend you several Chicken Soup for the Soul books. And if you merely want your intellect tickled, I can probably find you a really good PhD thesis on aeronautical engineering. But if you and I want to meet God and hear his voice, let's learn to meditate on scripture. And God will throw in the other three for free. Nicholas Walterstorff wrote, quote, the tears of God are the meaning of history, end of quote. Every page of Scripture expresses the heart of the being we call God. They reveal the tears of God for His people. Hearing God is about meeting that God. If that encounter doesn't blast your will, emotions, and intellect, nothing will. Not even a Pulitzer Prize-winning maintenance manual.